Farmers have been marginalized over thousands of years, tens of thousands of years, price takers always taken for a ride. And I see a fantastic opportunity to now align the interests of farmers, consumers, planet, and make farmers benefit from reducing the use of fertilizers, herbicides, have more profitable businesses this way. Welcome to the Future Engineering Club podcast. My name's Jack Lomas and join me as I speak to some of the brightest minds in the built environment, hearing firsthand their experience building the future of our planet. For this week, we welcome Robert Galash, CEO and co-founder at Klim, a technology company based in Berlin, helping farmers transition over to regenerative agriculture practices. We dive into the fascinating topic of regenerative agriculture and really provide a bit of a deep dive to exactly what we mean by the term and the important role that it plays within our ecosystems. One quick point before I pass over to Robert. If you enjoy this episode, please consider giving it a share on LinkedIn and a like on Spotify, as it really helped promote our conversation to others who might find it helpful. Now, let's welcome Robert. Hi, Jack. Thanks for having me. Would you mind giving a little bit of an overview to what we mean exactly by regenerative agriculture and the role that it plays within our ecosystems? Of course. To understand regenerative agriculture, it's probably helpful to look at the food system as a whole. Food production is responsible for approximately a quarter of all global greenhouse gas emissions. And one of the reasons that is, is because a lot of the emissions come directly from the supply chain, from agriculture. In fact, more than 80% of all emissions come from the supply chain, from agriculture. And what we're seeing currently is that conventional agriculture is in crisis. We see ever more frequently occurring droughts that threaten harvests. We see that a rising population of now over 8 billion people needs to be fed, that we are having ever increasing prices for input, such as fertilizer, stricter regulation, that make it very difficult for farmers to produce profitably and sustainably. And in order to address all those challenges, we need to look at the very foundation of our food system, which is the soil. Unfortunately, over the last 100 years, our global soils have lost a lot of their fertility or the proxy for that soil organic carbon content. So soil store a significant amount of carbon. In fact, the first meter of soil contains more carbon than the whole 100 kilometer thick atmosphere. But we have lost around 50% of this through modern conventional agricultural practices. And that not only resulted in the release of around 500 billion tons of CO2 from soils into the atmosphere, which, of course, contributed to climate change, but also in degradation of the soil, reduced ability to cope with droughts and keep yields up, loss in biodiversity and the like. Now, in order to solve these challenges, the most powerful tool at our disposal is regenerative agriculture. Now, what is regenerative agriculture? It's a form of farming practices aimed to restore soil health and in this way also build up soil organic carbon slowly again. And they are based around a range of regenerative principles, such as I want to keep my soil covered as much as possible rather than having the earth barren. And I want to have deep permanent root penetration. I want to have a broad crop rotation. I would like to minimize soil disturbances. This can be achieved through a range of methods, such as cover crops, catch crops, the more conventional ones, or agroforestry, silvopastoral systems, rotational grazing. 
And the beauty about regenerative agriculture is that this way, not only can build up soil organic carbon and actually draw down CO2 from the atmosphere and store it in soils, and I can do that actually at quite a significant scale, the estimates range from one to over 10 gigatons per year that you could capture and store with regenerative agriculture. The beauty about region ag is that it goes beyond climate impact. So we can remove the carbon tunnel vision here and look at the other benefits that are created. For example, regenerative agriculture helps restore biodiversity. Biodiversity is arguably the second largest crisis that's facing humanity at the moment. With regenerative agriculture through the restoration of soil health, I also improve the water retention rates of soils. And this helps farmers reduce the risk for crop loss during these ever more frequently occurring droughts. At the same time, with regenerative agriculture, I can also reduce the need for fertilizers and herbicides in this way, improve my profitability at a farmer. And in the long term, I can, in fact, through the restoration of soil health, improve the nutrition availability in the soil and therefore nutrition density in the food and hence the quality of the food. So it's actually a win-win for everybody. It's good for the farmers. It's good for the food companies. And uh, ultimately, it's great for the consumer as well. And I do want to touch on the, the food companies in terms of major buyers of agricultural goods. But just before I do, I want to just go back to one of the points you mentioned a few minutes ago around the typical practices that we see a lot of farmers taking when it comes to regenerative agriculture. So you mentioned cover crops. Would you mind breaking down what some of the, the more common approaches look like at the minute? At the moment, cover crops and catch crops and a extended crop rotation are typically the entry point for farmers transitioning towards regenerative agriculture. And the more complex methods such as agroforestry or silvopastoral systems are used by far fewer farmers. It also depends on the region. So cover and catch crops mean that, for example, as I use corn rather than just sowing corn, and then imagine you're a child, you walk through a cornfield, you walk on the barren earth. Rather than doing that, you walk on actually a second seed combination that's covering the ground. So between the corn, the ground is covered. And that, once the corn is being harvested, continues to grow and covers the earth that would otherwise be left barren between two main crops. And this way, you manage to achieve the first principle of regenerative agriculture, permanent soil coverage, but you also improve the root density in the soils. And this way, you can then achieve soil organic carbon buildup depending on the context and crop rotation you're working in. And whereas the benefits of cover and catch cropping may not appear immediately in the first year or after the first year, after two or three or four years, you can see a real impact on your crop rotation on, on yield and susceptibility to droughts. So just continuing the example around crop rotation, when a farmer adopts crop rotation, do they get paid for these additional crops? Are they able to commercialize it or is it more of a long-term investment into their land? So those crops are most often not used to sell on the market. You can in some cases, but 
it is an investment into several areas in future profitability, in resilience of the yields. And in case of the offering that Klim offers to farmers, it's also essential to achieve solar organic carbon buildup and get paid for it. Because what we do is we financially reward farmers for transitioning to regenerative agriculture and this way build up solar organic carbon and this way capture and store CO2 or reduce emissions. So I know that one of the approaches that you take at Clem and how you split the offerings, you've got the offset versus the inset. Would you mind just spending a second to break down what we mean by these two different definitions and how they differ? Yes. So probably most have heard about an offset, which means a company that has certain emissions allocated to their production cannot reduce those emissions to zero and has emissions left. And then they would like to compensate them by funding a project that could be afforestation in South America or solar project to either reduce emissions elsewhere or capture and store carbon elsewhere to compensate for that, for those remaining emissions. That's compensation. I do something outside my own supply chain. Insetting, or more accurately called supply chain transformation, is when food companies look at the farmers they're sourcing from, and they're basically getting these farmers to adopt different practices, regenerative practices that help them reduce emissions or actually actively capture and store CO2. What they are doing is not compensation. They're actually reducing their own scope three emissions. And this is something that is fundamentally different from offsetting. And scope three emissions are an increase in focus area at the minute. You look at a lot of net zero targets for large multinationals. Often they'll typically only focus on your scope one and two. So the emissions that they are directly responsible for in the production of the product, for example. And then scope three is often where a lot of the emissions lie, particularly when you look at high emitting sectors such as, say, oil and gas and, and others. In terms of the buyers who have these large supply chains and source their materials and, and food products from a number of different farms, let's take the example of a, of a fast-moving consumer goods company like a Unilever, for example, that works with thousands of farms globally. I imagine that they have quite a lot of buy-in power and influence over their suppliers their suppliers, which I'm sure vary considerably in, in size in terms of the size of farm. What sort of buying power and influence do you see these sort of large FMCGs having over these small farms and the regenerative agriculture practices that they're adopting? They have significant power and they are using and exercising it by having committed huge budgets, billions of euros to transitioning their supply chains. And they do that, in fact, by actively supporting the transition financially, which is what we are facilitating with Klim. And in the long term, of course, there will be a lot more focus on what are the emissions associated with the products I source. So there's a shift away from looking at low price sourcing towards a more holistic sourcing, where I take into account the product carbon footprint, the emissions associated with a ton of wheat or potato, for example. And of course, the food companies are the ones closest or the retailers closest to the consumer, and therefore they have significant amount of power. And I imagine if you 
continue with the example of Unilever, Unilever sourcing from thousands of farms. I imagine they've got to take quite a standardized approach in terms of their requirements that they put onto their supply chain. What sort of challenges do you see with this? Do you see maybe some smaller farms maybe struggling to meet the requirements of some of these large multinationals? Or would they say Unilever, for example, maybe sort of scale their requirements suit depending on the scale and the maturity of the of the producer? So the beauty about regenerative agriculture is that there's solutions for all sizes of farms. You can find solutions for a one hectare smallholder farm in India, and you can find one for a 10,000 hectare farm in Germany. And in the end, the most important thing is that we transition the farming practices of all farmers towards more sustainable, regenerative ones. And there are solutions that are perhaps more adaptable to, to smaller farms, but in some that are perhaps more useful for larger farms. In, in general, the food companies are using a simple heuristic. They're using tons of CO2 emitted or the product carbon footprint in the, in, in the future. And that will be accounted on the farm level, on the hectare level. And I don't see a significant challenge there of tailoring the requirements to individual farm sizes. What's more relevant is probably tailoring them to obviously different produce that you source and perhaps different regions. So in some areas in the world, farming practices are already quite optimized and hence you have a high yield per hectare, which of course influences the product carbon footprint because what, you're, what you care about is not what are your emissions per hectare, but what are your emissions per produced ton of XYZ potato? Because that is the ultimate unified metric. Otherwise, you won't be able to account for leakage, which means that if you would just look at emissions per hectare, you might create incentives that are basically we reduce productivity on a hectare to achieve lower emissions per hectare, but that would have to be compensated by increasing production elsewhere. And then you would have an overall, perhaps even negative effect on the climate because you might produce elsewhere where the productivity of the soil or the emissions are even worse. And this role that these large buyers have within the marketplace in forcing their own requirements onto farms and almost bringing about industry change and environmental change through simply buying power, which is a, is a positive thing in my opinion. I guess that's almost a product of sort of free market economics and in parallel, you then have the role of regulation. How up to speed would you say the regulator is in terms of safe chemicals used within farming? And do you think there's a bit of a catch up needed? So I think the more interesting issue is how the regulatory bodies up to speed with regards to the regenerative transition, which is not simply reducing chemical usage. The reduced need for fertilizers and herbicides due to the regenerative transition is a consequence of building up soil health. It is not the starting point. So the question would be, how do regulatory bodies incentivize the regenerative transition? And the EU, they are being, so, so of course, project policy proposals are being drawn, directives are being initiated. Just recently, last week, one came out, which basically mandated that we at least monitor what's going on. It fell shy of setting standards. My personal view is that regulatory bodies are mostly reacting and slow. And 
small companies, impact startups, and even large food corporates are often moving much faster than the regulatory bodies do. And that is because in the case of region ag, there are perfectly good business reasons for converting your supply chain. In fact, to make it resilient, secure future operability are amongst those reasons. And food companies have an incentive to act upon those independently of any regulatory pressure. And I know that the large food producers are increasingly looking at their supply chain resilience, working with their farms, as you described, to really try and help install more security into the, the, the food market. I imagine that the step towards regenerative agriculture is a key enabler of building in this resilience. So could you give a bit of an overview to, to Klim? Yeah, so with Klim, it's our mission to enable as many farmers as possible to transition towards regenerative agriculture because we want to transform our food system. And this way we would like to capture millions of tons of CO2 each year and regenerate millions of hectares of farmland towards regenerative practices. And the way we do it is by working on multiple sites. We work on the farmer side. We have developed a platform, digital platform and an app for farmers to help them transition to region ag by supporting them with tools to quantify the impact they generate and access finance, financial support for that, accessing know-how and accessing a community of other farmers where they can exchange ideas. And they, once the that they capture and store is quantified, they get paid for that accordingly. And we work with the food industry mainly to finance all this because we enable the food industry to transition their supply chains, which they have a strong interest to achieve. And that's what we do with an offering for farmers and food industry. We also believe that the consumer plays an important role in the whole story. And that's why we involve them as well, mainly by educating them through the use of the Klim label, which we have managed to sell over a million products with already, and which also positions farmers in public and therefore gives them some of the appreciation that they actually deserve as stewards of the earth. I'm really interested to get your thoughts on your experiences around the adoption. So when you typically approach a farm at Klim, what's the typical response? when they see your, your capabilities and your, your technology? So the DNA of Klim is that of a farmer-centric company. We have built a digital platform, including an app for farmers, that's really centered around the interests of a typical farmer. And that's reflected not only in a really easy to use app with great UX and UI, but also in processes behind it that are really tailored to a farmer's realities. So farmers can convert just part of the land, 5%, for example, to adjust the risk as they need. And that, amongst other reasons, for example, that we really represent farmers in society, it's part of the solution via our consumer angle. We have a food label as well with over a million products sold. This all contributes to farmers really valuing what they do. And so the initial reaction towards Klim is a very positive one. Then the next question is conversion. How do we get the farmers to really convert? And there's where really the challenge lies. It's, it's not so much only measuring what's going on. It's actually getting the farmers motivated to change practices and create a delta, which you can then measure and, in fact, monetize. So here we are engaging in different ways to motivate the farmer to change from behavior science informed incentives or nudges 
to agronomist level advice that we pro provide to the farmer. And that's needed because if you just throw money at the fence and tell a farmer, here's X euro per ton, why don't you transition? That's not going to work. In fact, if you would talk to typical farmers and ask them, what about regenerative transition? A sizable fraction of them would say, why I'm already doing enough. What should I do? What else should I do? So this is where you need to put in energy into the transition. And we, with our platform and product, have managed to do that in a scalable way, which is why, for example, the food industry works with us. It sounds as though you take such a holistic approach to supporting farms and their needs. What are the key areas of impact that you find are received, received the best from farms? So for the farmer, the motivation for transition is to ensure resilience against droughts, crop loss, ensure future profitability by reducing the need for fertilizer and the like, to gain an additional income through the financial support we provide via the sales of our emission reductions, tons, for example, also as credits. And many are actually intrinsically motivated to just set up their farms for success in the future. They're actually thinking about future generations. Lo and behold, and in the end, it's not so surprising because farmers are really very much attached to their land. And on the financial point, would you mind giving a bit of a, an idea in terms of the financial return of this investment? So farmers perhaps make between 1,000 and 2,000 euros per hectare in revenue, but of this, a small part is profit and a few couple of hundred euros perhaps. And so what we enable them to do is to A, improve the profitability of that mid to long term and B, get financial support in form of credits. And so if a farmer generates around one ton per hectare per year, then he can earn around 35 euros additionally to do that. And this, of course, is not the only reason why a farmer transitions. The other reasons that I mentioned are equally or for some even more important. But the mix of all those reasons and incentives enables us to create enough reason for farmers to change. And in the future, the price for those credits is expected to increase. And with that, we'll be able to address even more farmers. Also those that right now may, might not, you know, convinced by the amount that can be, so, can be paid to them. There was a report released in the UK fairly recently, which found that about 64% of farmers think it is important to consider greenhouse gas emissions when making farm business decisions, which really demonstrates the, the willingness at a farm level in actually improving and evolving their farm operations. Mm -hmm. Now that's, we see a shift in farmers that the topic is gaining momentum clearly. And tragically in Germany, for example, also fueled by the fact that the last six years were droughts and it's getting worse. So, yeah, you know this old saying, change does not happen until the pain of staying the same outweighs the pain of change. And so this pays a role here as well. On the point of financing, the climate financing gap is a, is a common theme across a lot of the industry at the minute, far beyond agriculture. What does the issue look like when it comes to agriculture in terms of a financing gap? So Region Ag is probably the best bang for the back impact solution we can think of right now. Not so much 
only because of the, the two sequestration performance, but because of all the co-benefits that it brings, biodiversity, food security, food quality, fairness to farmers. So it's an amazing solution. And I'm convinced that it will become more and more obvious that these solutions, nature-based solutions, are really the way to go. Currently, there's a lot of discussion around the topic of permanence. And it is true that you won't be able to guarantee thousand-year permanence with nature-based solutions. But the point right now, in order to really make a change, is not to look at solutions which, which guarantee 1,000-year permanence. It's foolish to think that unless we have a perfect solution, a perfectly accurate measurement, perfectly 1,000-year permanent solution, we don't act. That's absolutely foolish. What we need is a portfolio of initiatives which include longer permanent solutions and nature-based solutions where you have a good estimate of what the permanence on average will be like. And we need to drive all those solutions. But with, with Region Act, you have the opportunity to create a massive impact and actually bring the captured CO2 to good use in the soils by increasing soil health. So I'm convinced that there will be much more money that will be flowing in this direction. But at the moment, the voluntary carbon credit markets, even though it's growing quite quickly, I think it could be growing more quickly. And I think the recent discussions, the headlines that, that The Guardian made and so forth, of course, have created a lot of confusion or bias, and that impacts that. And by the reference to Guardian articles, I'm assuming that you're referencing that the carbon credit market. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so there was a, there was an article involving CISVERA and and certain standards and how, in terms of afforestation projects in the tropics, I believe the predictions by the models made in the past held up against the actuals achieved. I don't want to go into detail there now. I think it's super important that we constantly improve our models and reflect on how we can improve things. And at the same time, it's important to also not completely destroy probably the only climate finance instrument we have right now. And it's such a fascinating topic in terms of regenerative agriculture. How did you get into this? So my background's actually in engineering. So you'd probably think, what do I have to do with agriculture? But after I completed my PhD in the UK and developed a range of technologies there, I had the opportunity to commercialize them by helping build up an R&D lab with my professor at the time, Nick Patronich. And that sparked the entrepreneurial bug. And ever since then, I've been in the impact entrepreneurship space, doing startups or building ventures. I've also been very active in the sustainability space, developing methods for sustainable product development, sustainable business model innovation and impact assessment. That was always something that was vital for me to work on something that I considered meaningful. But in, 2020, in 2019, I felt that emission reductions, which was the main focus for me in the climate space until then, alone won't achieve our climate targets. So I decided that I wanted to look at the negative emission space and then I approached it quite systematically. I made a long list of negative emission technologies and compared them along the dimensions of what the absolute impact you can generate, how quickly can you get there, how neglected are those solutions, what's the personal fit, interest, business case, at a short list, and then concluded that the regenerative agriculture is the most fascinating space. It's the broadest impact. 
I wouldn't have impact FOMO. I'm not sure whether it's clear what I mean by that. It's when you think you could have more impact elsewhere. And I felt that I would never have impact FOMO again if I work on that. And that's been confirmed. And then coming from a product background as well, spoke with hundreds of farmers, found out what are the barriers to adoption, developed the concept, and then Klim came out of this. Just one final question. So building such a human-centric company, engage in the farming community to really help support them in transitioning. What have been your biggest learnings through that human-centric approach? Well, it's a positive one. And that is that if you treat your users, your customers fairly, and you authentically have their interests at heart, it will be rewarded. Not only from the farmers, but also, interestingly, from the food industry. So I feel very happy about that because farmers have been marginalized over thousands of years, tens of thousands of years, price takers always taken for a ride. And I see a fantastic opportunity to now align the interests of farmers, consumers, planet, and make farmers benefit from reducing the use of fertilizers, herbicides, have more profitable businesses this way. So I find that extremely motivating to really change something from the ground up. You've been listening to the Future Engineering Club podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. I really hope you enjoyed it. Stay tuned for next week's episode. And in the meantime, give me a shout on LinkedIn and let me know what you think. Thanks and goodbye.